Welcome to Talk With Me. This is Marsha Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas on lawrencehits.com. It's still January of 2017, or it's already January of 2017, depending on your perspective. We've still got a little bit of snow here, but we are getting nothing like what other parts of the country are. And I am grateful, but also sorry for people whose lives are totally uh, derailed by ice and snow. But it's beautiful if you don't have to go out in it sometimes. Um, I am excited just to remind my listeners that we have these wonderful conversations, these Talk With Me podcasts, that starting with the ones recorded in 2017 are on iTunes and Google Play Music. And the ones from 2016 and before are still at Mixcloud. Mixcloud.com slash Lawrence Hits. I love to have people go back and look for some certain people that you were pretty sure recorded and you can find that and listen and have a great experience um, with artists. Sometimes it's about poetry or other kinds of writing. Sometimes it's other kinds of art that people do or sometimes it's multiple arts. A lot of recent shows, a lot of post-election shows, really also remind people that art is one of those important ways that we connect, that we kind of open minds and hearts and maybe make some good things happen that might not have happened if people weren't experiencing art. That part excites me. And I always have to give a shout out or frequently have to give a shout out to what's called the U.S. Department of Arts and Cultures, which is a people's movement where the top priority is increasing belonging and using arts and elevating arts and culture to make good things happen in communities all over. And so that's that's something I'll be talking about periodically, usdac.us, you can find out more, you can get involved. You could even host a story circle that would become part of the People State of the Union. And to find out about that, go to usdac.us backslash P-S-O-T-U, for People's State of the Union. If you're in the Lawrence, Kansas area, come join us. We're doing story circles on Sunday, January 29th at the Lawrence Public Library, 4 to 6 p.m. It's a chance to have your voice, your story heard, and also for it to inform a national poetic address. How cool is that? Anyway, I will keep talking about that because I'm so excited about it. And today I'm excited about connections. Connections that happen as I was talking with my guests before we came on air. Some of those connections happen because of the internet. It can be a really great thing to connect with this person who connects you with this person and and then these webs get woven and people who we didn't even know knew each other know each other. It's very cool, very good. And we need that web of connection, absolutely. Today, my guest is one of the wonderful poets who will be part of the Kansas City Poetry Throwdown, which will be at Prospero's Books in downtown Kansas City or midtown Kansas City during April. April is Poetry Month. April 2017 will be the second KC Throwdown. It's an amazing event of poets coming in from all over the country, different styles, people being in the same space, some of those, many of those people meeting each other in person the first time, 
I'm excited about all this. I get excited. I think it's great. I think there's wonderful stuff that happens through poetry. And today my guest is Nathaniel William Stolte. And again, he will be one of the poets in April at Prospero's at the Throwdown. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you and good morning. Good morning. So tell us, our listeners and me, a little bit about you. I am a um, <clears throat> I'm a student at Buffalo State College in the secondary English education uh, department. Uh, that's fancy talk for I want to teach the kids to English in a high school <laughs> setting. Um, and I'm nearly done with that. And I do intend to teach the kids to English. And um, <laughs> I am a, uh, a poet and a bookmaker. Uh, some friends of mine uh, locally here in Buffalo um, had a, a good idea and uh, some ambition and um, a ability to learn and adapt and be corrected and um, open to suggestion. And we've started a small press and we're in our second, this will be our second full year. And um, I guess what, what else am I? I, uh, I'm a, I work at a different college. I tutor English to a, a predominantly um, non-native English-speaking uh, demographic that's uh, actually mostly Muslim women is uh, who I end up tutoring the most. And um, I don't know, I'm like a son and uh, a Buffalo, New York native and mm -hmm. a waiter. So I guess that's about all the things that I am. I'm a mammal, I guess, I'm that as well. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> So what's the Buffalo poetry scene like? It is, um, it is continuing to grow. Uh, when I, I have not been writing or performing um, poetry for very long, only a couple of years now. And when I went to the first reading in Buffalo um, that, I, that I had the, um, the gall to show up at, and I was like, I'm going to read a poem. I did, and I was like, by a couple decades, the youngest person there. And I, I was, um, at the same time, I was kind of like uh, floored by the talent of these like seeming like giants of, of poetry. There were people that I had, um, I'd heard their names before. I'd sort of, um, you know, without necessarily going to readings, I'd read poetry. And um, mm -hmm. so I was, uh, I, the first thing I noticed was that they were um, extremely talented and uh, shadowed only a little bit by the fact that I was so much younger than them. And I was like, where is the young, like, where are the young people? Uh -huh. And um, so the poetry scene in Buffalo has a lot of young poets and it also has a lot of like well-established um, like gray-haired poets. And I say that lovingly, there was a, a reading series called the gray hair series. So I feel that I can, you know, refer to them as the gray hairs um, uh -huh. affectionately. And so it, it, for a while, in my perception anyway, and I got to understand that I'm like me joining this dialogue that's been going on for generations uh, and me only seeing a couple of years of it. I understand mm -hmm. that I have a narrow vision. This is just what I perceive. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it's like the actual truth, but um, I've noticed that there's been a, a homogenization, a melding of these, uh, the younger and the older poets, largely due to the uh, works of 
um, not only myself, but some other like really driven, ambitious, and talented people in Buffalo. Um, ben uh, Brindice and Brandon Williamson, who are the Pure Ink, um, Pure Ink Poets. And um, I mean, there's more in the Pure Ink Poets as well. They, they're like spoken word artists, and they host a reading twice a month at a bar. They host the slams when the slams come to town. But they also write literary poetry, and they make books. You know, they have, they have books of their uh, of their poems. And then there's um there's several series that tend to only host and uh, feature like well established um like the gray hairs. And then there's the reading that I host once a month. Well, I co-host with my friends Julio uh, Montalvo Valentin, uh, Jennifer Skelton and uh, Mistral Celeste Conbacera, we all sort of take turns, like, uh, like taking the helm of that one. And uh, that one tends to have a nice mixture of, um, of younger and older literary spoken word artists, and, uh, and it, it tends to be a really welcoming environment, which mm-hmm. was what we were aiming at. Great. So we succeeded. In the, the year that we've been doing that reading, it's, been, uh, it's grown exponentially. That's There's great. about 30 regular attendees. So uh-huh. I feel like I said a lot. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I was going to ask you about was, you know, since you you started by saying there was sort of this older established poetic community and now there are more younger. And by the names of your co-hosts, I'm going to guess that there's a lot of diversity now in terms of who these poets are. Is that pretty accurate? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's been a lot of uh, diversity um, I mean, I want to say Lucille Clifton is from this area. I mean, she's probably the most well-known poet to come out of here, to come mm-hmm. out of, like, the western New York, Buffalo area. I mean, she's from, like, a, a suburb, from what I understand, a suburb right outside of Buffalo. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we have a long history of, um, of like, minority poets or, uh, or of, like, a diverse um, ethnic um, coming out of here. But it's, it's a place that a lot of immigrants move to. Mm-hmm. Like the Buffalo is sort of like a melting pot right now. Okay. There is a lot of um, diversity. There's a lot of people um, moving here and frankly making the neighborhoods nicer. Like there's mm-hmm. parts of the west side that I, when I was a kid, I used to roll around in that weren't very nice. And now they're really nice because people own their homes and they care about their community and they own businesses in their community and they're all, they're all immigrants, you know, That's and cool. they made my neighborhood nice. Uh-huh. That's not the story that we hear in a lot of communities. We hear the opposite. I recently was talking to Betty Yu, who is a filmmaker um, in New York, and she we were talking about gentrification and and what's being really fought in the Chinatown area of New York and other places of you know property values being escalated when zoning is changed to allow different kinds of uh, businesses, which then outprice the families and small businesses that have been there forever. So um, it sounds like that's not what's happening in Buffalo. And that's that's really exciting. It's something to learn from for sure. Well, I'm not like an authority on any of that. That's just what I perceive, what yeah. I noticed from like being a member of the community. Uh-huh. Um, I don't want anyone to think that I like to speak for all of Buffalo. I oh, speak for, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, for myself. And I think that the, the national dialogue in that um, arena is largely governed by uh, manufactured uh, fear that um, we are being, I guess, uh, 
fed from the television and from the media. And, uh, and, and again, I'm not an authority on anything, but like, that's just what I perceive that I'm being told that I should fear and, um, and shun and hate something that doesn't look like me. And then meanwhile, like I have these, um, like I said, I tutor English. So people who are trying generally like non-traditional students come in and are trying to like write, write better. And they're trying to understand American um, ideas of intellectual property and citation and MLA and APA. And uh, so I have, I form these like semester long, sometimes like two year long, because it's a community college relationships with these people that are not, uh, um, you know, naturalized Americans or not. Mm-hmm. I'm born Americans and, and I get to have this relationship with a human being as opposed to uh, an idea that's fed to me from somebody who wants me to be afraid and consume and shun and fear, you know, I don't know. It's uh, so I don't know. That's just, that's just me. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. So in terms of your poetry, you mentioned that you've only been performing for a couple of years. What, what brought you to write poetry? Uh, in like 2012, I think, or maybe 2013, I had never been so broken emotionally and like uh, my mental health wasn't that great due to some um, like me pursuing unhealthy behaviors and knowing that it was unhealthy and like that internal argument was, hey, maybe you should knock this off. I was like, I'll do, I'll knock it off later. And then um, I'm like, you know, the, the classic story of like, my heart was broken. I was never so hurt. And, um, and I had been taking some creative, re- no, I'm sorry. I had not taken creative writing classes yet. I'd been taking, um, literature classes in which we were studying poetry and I had finally been, um, read poetry by somebody who cared about it and was, um, not, not some like high school teacher, like obligatory sonnet. Right. And, um, yeah. and like Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> where it was like monotone and sort of. So like in high school, I um, first of all was like argumentative and confrontational, and I didn't want to be there. And I thought the whole institution was stupid, which is really funny because I'm going to be a high school teacher in like a couple of years. I'll be in a classroom that's on the other perfect. end of it. Perfect. No, that's perfect because you know <laughs> some of the flaws that can happen in the way teaching is done. And so you won't be that teacher that you had. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So I, in high school, I packed poetry away on one of those shelves in my mind of like, doesn't apply to me. That's stupid. Like, I'm not interested yeah. in it. And then I get yeah. to college and I have to take the, um, well, first of all, my focus is English. So I'm taking all these English classes, all these literature courses. And I had a professor, uh, Bill Shue, who uh, or like Professor Shu, uh, he read us like Sylvia Plath and he cared about it and he had read it a lot of times and he was like invested in it and he was a po- he is a poet and in that moment I got goose flesh and I was like oh my goodness like that's poetry like yeah. I feel something yeah and and meanwhile I had seen like um, throughout my life I'd seen the deaf poetry jams and I had like mm-hmm. watched button poetry when I you know like because that's you know it's like a an emotional, I don't remember a lot of the poems, but I remember how I felt. I remember mm-hmm. the like emotionally charged con- conveyance of uh, a feeling that performance poetry um, elicits, elicits out of me. And it's sort of like, um, I guess what it's geared towards. I don't really know much about um, slam poetry and I don't want to like 
speak on it because I have friends that might be mad at me if I like <laughs> say something wrong. So, um, but, so I had a professor who cared about poetry and mm-hmm. read us some poetry. And then I, um, I had my, I was like, I was in this moment where it was in the middle of the night and I'm like, I can't call anyone. And I like, I don't know what to do. So I started writing like a short story. And then, uh, I, I, I'm like a strong starter and a poor finisher. And then, uh, so the end of it was just like rubbish. And then, uh, sometime in that night I wrote a poem and then I rewrote it. And then in the morning I was like, I'm going to go read that stuff that I wrote last night, like up in my like crazy obsessive thinking about all this stuff and like how I was wronged and how uh, hurt I am. And I went back and read that poem. Um, and first, first I found like the first draft of it and I was like, oof, like this is terrible. And then I was like, I remember it being better than that. I don't even know. And then it, uh, I found the, the final draft of it and I was like, this isn't that bad. And I showed that teacher and he told me I should take some creative writing classes. Uh-huh. And I did. And then I wrote a bunch of poems. And then I met another teacher who, um, I took a, I was an honor student at that um, community college, the one I work at now. And I met a professor who uh, convinced me that I could make a chapbook for my honors capstone. So ECC like funded and uh, gave me three credits to make a chapbook. So my first chapbook, like I not only was it like a free ride, but I also got three college credits out of the deal Uh and a chapbook. Cool. Which one was that? Uh, it's called A Beggar's Book of Poems. Okay. I've, um, I've written um, four chapbooks, and I have two more on the way. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I no longer, because I am the acquisitions editor of CWP Collective Press, I could just continue to pull my own chapbooks out, but I'm not going to make uh, a wider audience or, like, meet anyone new. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I've only been sending out my manuscripts to other chapbook presses around yeah. Um so, uh, Unformed Creature is coming out later this year by um, Ghost City Press out of Syracuse, New York. And then I have Ooh. two um, manuscripts I'm still working on that I want to send out to. Uh, hopefully, I meet some small press publishers at the Throwdown, and yeah. they like my work. And yeah. that's part of my plan, really. Yeah, yeah. And as somebody who's me, I'm not a writer, I was interested when I realized that many people who are very talented writers have small presses, but that's not where their work is published. You know, just like you, there's, there's this connection of, you know, in, in my community, for example, Denise Lowe, who's a former poet laureate of Kansas and her husband, Tom Wiso, who's also a painter and a writer, they have a press called Mammoth Publications but their Mm -hmm. works are published by other people, you know, and I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And, and it it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Um, One is I suppose it's, it avoids having too much inbreeding and, you know, in terms of that you have other influences, you have other people really laying eyes on stuff and really Mm -hmm. working on things uh, to make this book a success in, in their environment not just your own ideas of it which it's very it's very interesting to me and fascinating and i love one of the things i love about um, the writers who also have presses is it's part of that thing of elevating other voices you know Mm -hmm. in my it's been about three years for me when i've really been paying attention 
to writing and writers in my area in the in the Midwest, Kansas City people and Topeka and Lawrence, Kansas and and other parts of Kansas in particular. Um, and and I realized that the, the few people that I haven't really felt a connection with are those people who really are so into promoting their own work that they they don't they don't have that just intuitive sense of I need to also be bringing other people up with me, and I and I Community. lose interest. Yeah, I lose interest in them as people and them as writers, and I feel judgmental. And then it's like, but it's okay. It's what it is for me. <laughs> So I love that that you're working with other people too and doing a lot of writing. So you started writing pretty recently is basically what you're saying. You know, some people like, well, I started writing as soon as I could hold a pencil and that was when I was four years old. And, you know, I was writing short stories back then and selling them to my classmates. <laughs> yeah. Wild I, you know, stories. You know, yeah. That's yeah. just not my experience. I was um, yeah. I was doing a lot of other things while everyone else around me I mean, I'm 35 years old and I'm an undergrad, uh -huh. you know, I mean, and there's reasons for that. It's not because uh -huh. like, you know, I'm just, I guess a late bloomer or something. And there's, a, I have like notebooks from some of my um, like squatting days when I used to live in abandoned houses uh -huh. and we would make our own booze and like, you know, living in squalor. I have notebooks from them that were really surprisingly like lucid and, um, coherent and like on point for exactly what was wrong and what needed to be fixed. I just had no ability to fix it. And uh -huh. it was just sort of like, so I, I, I think that reading those is a lot of fun, but so, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I've written before and I was excelled uh -huh. in English class when I would apply myself. But for the most part, like I said, I just was like, this doesn't apply to me. And I have this really punk rock mentality of like, uh -huh. like a middle finger and like, you can't tell me. And, um, and I found that like poetry is a way I can sort of, uh, like funnel that and like maybe not necessarily have a middle finger anymore, but I can like air my grievances and talk about my observations mm -hmm. um, and the world around me in a way that uh, tends to get more attention than just raving like, ah, <laughs> you're all doomed, you know, we're yeah. all doomed. Yeah. So I don't know. So it gave you, it gives you an outlet, not only for your own expression, but also for, getting it heard by people. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I, I think it's important to have something to say. Like if uh -huh. you're going to, um, and when you were talking about people promoting themselves, like yeah, I spend a much of my, um, my function at my press is the acquisitions editor. I am the promoter. I'm the face. I'm the one who's like uh -huh. out talking to poets. I'm the one who's like soliciting manuscripts. I'm the one who's, um, like reading many of the initial manuscripts and um, mm -hmm. and formatting them and uh, and then I send them off to Mistral, um, our editor in chief, or um, to Julio, uh, who will also he also has an excellent eye for detail and like he's really good at um, at like noticing things that I'll miss. So we you know uh, much of my function is promoting like uh -huh. other people as well as myself. And like, I get to also right. promote me in that. So like, why wouldn't I want to do that? I mean, it's like, it's pretty great to be yeah. able to, um, to like Barker someone else's work and, and intimately know it to like read it 
You know, I've read this book. I, I, I helped choose the order in which the poems appeared. I worked with the artist. I worked with the poet and the whoever did the cover art to, like, create this thing. And, um, like, I'm proud of that. I'm, I take a lot of pride in the fact that, like, people, for one, I'm, for one hand, like, trust me enough to be like, here's my work. Like, help me make something with it. Like, that's a, a huge honor, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a privilege that, uh, that I certainly don't, don't deserve, but I have earned it, I think. I've worked very hard to be a, like a voice in the Buffalo poetry community, to, um, to be the person I am today. I've worked really hard for many, many years, uh, and it's been like painful, arduous, rewarding, and like, wonderful. But uh-huh. I feel like I'm kind of all over the place. You got, you got me like, all coffeeed up. It's like early in the, early in the afternoon <laughs> here in Buffalo. It's 12 yeah. degrees outside. Oh, yeah. So well, let's I, focus this then into how about sharing some poetry before we get to this halfway in our show? Okay. I have yeah. some poems coming. Um, my, one of my next book, uh, manuscripts that I'm working on right now is called um, A Beggar's Prayer Book. And living in Buffalo, it's like 12 degrees outside right now, and there's snow. And I know that right now there's people like, who are living on the street due to like mental illness or um, chemical dependency or, uh, or whatever the case may be, like fill in the blank. And, uh, and I feel like a, a kinship and an empathy to them. So here is a couple poems from my series uh, forthcoming called A Beggar's Prayer Book. And this is the title poem called A Beggar's Prayer. A Beggar's Prayer for Kyle Tucker. Sometimes I take the long way to see if you're flying a sign where the highway ends, begging for loose prayers from the traffic lights, impatient captives in front of the projects across from the church the mayor goes to. They installed rebar under the Michigan Street Bridge to banish the loathsome. I used to visit you there when that was your home. You always have a smile on your wind and sun-beaten face. There is always a little bit less in your eyes a little bit less bone in your mouth. I imagine you still cook your breakfast in a spoon somewhere under a different bridge. I remember when we were friends, when you were searching for answers to questions forgotten, when washed down with expired medications and steel reserve. I'd give you everything I have if I thought it would help, but you've refused the cost of redemption. Sometimes I take the long way to see if there's anything left. <clears throat> yeah, and, uh, and that's that's as you're saying. I mean, that's that's real life for some people, and and acknowledging them as people, acknowledging everyone as a person. You know, I don't like that I said them. Acknowledging everyone. You know, looking at people, paying attention, recognizing we have limits and how much influence we're going to have on somebody else's life, but but caring and making contact. That's huge, and so that to me. That is an especially beautiful poem story and and kind of reminder to people, you know. Somebody might be at one of your readings and you and you share that poem and maybe they think about that person who they've walked by in a doorway on a cold day, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and they haven't they haven't had, from my perspective, when I think about myself, maybe haven't had the courage to try to look at that person, to try to engage that person, you know or the person they've avoided on the street because the person's mm-hmm. talk doesn't make sense. And instead, you know, hearing hearing your poem and thinking a little bit about 
you know, that there are unknowns in people's lives and maybe there is some connection we can make that makes a difference. You know, I think that's really inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have time for one more in the Beggar's Prayer Book? Um, yes, absolutely. They, these ones are short. Um, this one's called Midnight Shopping. In front of the can return, there's an unwashed man in baggy blue hospital pants feeding rancid cans into a hungry machine. I wonder if I'm the only one who can see him. The machine will never be satisfied. Much like him, much like me, it is dark, cold, and rainy. I fear that he is invisible. Mm-hmm. And that, that same, that same you know, you, you say it directly there, the fear that he's invisible. And I think that's unfortunately the way that we treat a lot of people when we aren't being open. We don't even realize it. And we can't. We can. So thank you for those. And you said those are from a manuscript um, that will be coming called a beggar's prayer book. So something for people to watch for. Um, do you yes. have an ETA for that one? Um, well, I, um, I'm actually probably like three or four poems shy of finishing it. And then mm -hmm. I was going to send it to, um, uh, Diane Borsnick in yes. Cleveland, Ohio. At, yes. um, yeah, she is amazing. And we did a reading mm -hmm. with her. Um, I, yeah, I'm part of like a, a literary poets collective called the Cringeworthy Poets Collective trying to like uh, make literary poetry more accessible to people and um, making, keeping chapbooks like cheap and available. And that's how we started the press. But uh, we met Diane and she's doing like, she was, I had bought some of her books like George Wallace and John Dorsey uh -huh. and um, John Burroughs um, uh -huh. books like from uh, Suzanne at Max Packs in Cleveland. Cause Cleveland's just down the road. And, yeah. uh, and then I met her and I was like, oh my God, look, I buy your books. And so I'm going to send that manuscript to her and hopefully she Lovely. accepts it. I know yeah. she's busy. I know she's doing a lot um, by herself, which uh, mm. I admire a lot. You know, the diligence uh, and hard work of these, uh, of these fellow like small press publishers and poets yeah. is like, yeah. it's inspirational. Yeah. And Diane's Press, I believe, is Night Ballet Press. Mm -hmm. and, and I always associate her with John Burroughs of Crisis Chronicles as well. Cool yeah. people. Good stuff going mm -hmm. on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to take uh, just a little break here and hear from a couple of the businesses that sponsor LawrenceHits.com. And then we will be back with more Talk With Me. This is Marcia Epstein and my guest, Nathaniel Williams Stolte, who's in Buffalo, New York, not in Lawrence, Kansas. And uh, we'll be hearing more about his work, hearing more of his work, all good stuff. And I get to thank Daniel Smith, the producer of the show. Daniel, thank you so much for all your hard work that makes this possible for people to hear. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Talk With Me. This is Marcia Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas. And my guest today is Nathaniel William Stolte in Buffalo, New York. And we were just talking about your hopefully soon to come book, A Beggar's Prayer Book, talking about poets elevating voices, and in particular, <clears throat> excuse me, those last two poems you shared, reminding us to recognize humanity, recognize people, do not treat people like they are invisible because they are not. And being treated like that is a horrible thing for all of us. And, you know, honestly, I think a lot of us have experienced that in different ways, not all the time, but a lot of us have had a touch of that. 
being uh, really, really pushed away. And so we can call on that experience and not do that to somebody else. Hey, so, yeah. So, and you mentioned you've got a couple of manuscripts that you're, that are in progress right now. You were just sharing yeah. from a beggar's prayer book. And you, you mentioned at the beginning that you, you kind of have different themes with different books coming up. So what are some of the other kinds of things you're working on? Um, well, aside from uh, my work with other people's uh, chat books, which we have uh, it's only the second week of uh, 2017, and we already have uh, one book that we finished, and we have wow. four more on the on the bill. So we're getting we're getting uh, busy. But I uh, my other manuscript that I'm calling uh, right now drive-throughs and Super Bowls because the term bread and circuses is already taken. I'm not you know I, I don't want to put out a chapbook with the name of a book that already exists. Uh -huh. And uh, are you familiar with um the Roman concept of drive-thrus and Super Bowls. Or I'm sorry, of uh, Brad and Circuses, rather. <laughs> <laughs> now you've really thrown me. I don't think I know either. Just go for it. <laughs> um, a, uh, Brad and Circuses, if, uh, if people are fed and entertained, they will not uh, revolt. Oh. They won't. Um, so, and I mean, we have food, right? There's an abundance of food around us, uh, at least here. I mean, I'm not starving. Uh, although there is a whole bunch of uh, diseases that I associate with starvation from people that eat every day, things like um, uh, diabetes and uh, hypertension and, um, high, you know, uh, like there's a lot of disease, uh, obesity. You know, when you're eating things that aren't actual food every day, you may not be experiencing hunger, but you will get the diseases that I associate with um, the other side of the coin of starvation. Uh -huh. um, so when you're eating, let's say, food, you, you're going to die from it, and it's probably going to be slow. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and then Super Bowls, like the circuses in ancient Rome were the Colosseum. And so they would go, and they would watch the, um, the bloodshed, and they would get, you know, so they provided them the food, and they provided them with entertainment. And we have food and entertainment today, and I believe we are being royally fucked and not <laughs> inclined to do much about it because we are entertained and well-fed. If we were starving, yeah. you know what I mean? Like people would do something. If there was no, if all of our cable went out and now all of a sudden all the water's so polluted, none of it's potable, and I had to like defend my water from my neighbors, I believe there would be some real social reform. But yeah. that's not the case yet. It's only in isolated places where that is. So in Michigan, um, you know, there, there's like, you know, a real, a real crisis on the horizon here. And yeah. I think we're all too fat, lazy, and overstimulated to, like, recognize that, uh, that, that there's doom on the horizon. And, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but, you know, I, I could cite a bunch of people that were called crazy uh, for their, um, their theories that are now considered facts, that are not theories anymore, but are, like, right. like actual historical facts. So, uh, right. drive-thrus and Super Bowls is my sort of, like, political social commentary on America. I guess, uh, and, and my life around here. Mm -hmm. So, this is the right time for that. That's for sure. I mean, that's well. That's I started. Kind of, yeah. I started writing some of these poems before there was a a, a potential. Um, uh, what do you call it? Um, like before a Trump presidency, I was going to try to say something clever about that, but uh -huh. it eluded me. There's nothing clever to say. <laughs> mm -hmm. How long ago did you start this? Um, like over a year ago. 
with some of these poems, like the concept. I um I sort of like my first uh my first three chapbooks were sort of like they just can't like real quick. I did the Beggar's uh Beggar's Book of Poems and then I did Bumblebee Petting Zoo like real quick and um and then uh Fool Song, which I'm very proud of the format of that one. It's like based on the tarot fool. And it's uh, so it, you can be read either way, upside down or right side up. It's um pretty interesting concept. Uh, I did those ones like all in 2015 and 2016. And then meanwhile, I had poems that didn't fit in either of those that I sort of just put to the side. And then I saw that they were accumulating. Like, here's all these poems about marginalization. Here's all these poems about like the people I knew when I lived in the street. Here's all, you know, uh, here's all these poems about my, you know, my anger toward the you know the state of affairs around me and uh and they don't fit in either of these books or they so i just started putting them in piles mm-hmm. old folders on a thumb drive i guess piles mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. and then they started to accumulate and then i was like oh well now i have uh, a concept that i'm starting to realize here mm-hmm. so a year ago what what was going on specifically that got you do you know I was uh, I started to wake tables in like a fancy restaurant. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's like uh so I don't know if you've ever been a waitress or like a hostess or retail, something. Retail but not not food service. Well, I worked at like a high end um fine dining in the uh second most rich suburb of Buffalo. Like a third ring suburb, you know, where all the the kids go to private school and like you know what I mean? They're not opposed to spending like $50 a person on a meal. And I was a waiter there and I got uh-huh. to see like, like what it was like to sort of be a servant. And I was like, Oh man, like there's a whole, like there's people living a life here. Like that are on, like, I, I didn't know that there's people living lives like this, like that yeah. this is a real thing. I saw it on TV and stuff, but I'd never been like confronted with it face to face. And yeah. um, I guess, I don't know, like just as my writing evolved, I was uh, starting to look at stuff, a little more political stuff. And I was, um, you know, like getting more education, uh, and as far as like where the foundation of um, American and, and British literature is, like why it is at the state that it is. You know, I was taking some of the century British literature classes. I was taking um, uh, ethnic American minority literature, African American literature, just all these. Um, all, all this different literature, contemporary and otherwise, from all these different kinds of people. So I was getting all these different perspectives on the world, coupled with me having a new perspective mm-hmm. uh, of a different socioeconomic bracket, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that's what was going on with me about a year yeah. ago. Yeah. And so you have this this growing body of political poems, and the time makes them even more relevant and so do you have one of those that you want to share? I do. And this one's actually my Christmas poem this year. Okay. It's much longer. Here's the title. The title is, And Nuclear Winter Won't Be So Bad As Long As Michael Buble Has Exclusive Rights to the Soundtrack. For Troy Cloutier, Thanks for the Pollen. Here's Some Honey. It's winter again, and Michael Buble has a two-for-one special on Christmas Carol lobotomies. I'm working this party with my friend Troy. We're slinging bolognese to the affluent, and I know they won't tip well because they've never known the comforts of service. But I smile, my bad teeth smile anyway, 
Even though these wine-soaked bastards are really running us, their teeth are straight and white, too white, like fresh suburban snow dreams or New Year's resolutions that are too new to be unrealistic because we all know that real change is small and can't be scheduled. Anyway, Bernie Sanders' identical twin is here cleaning up a giant Jenga set into reusable shopping bags. He looks mythic in his expensive suit, kneeling down, cleaning up someone else's mess. But it's really his mess, too. It's everybody's mess. It's like a metaphor for America that's too obscure for me to articulate and wouldn't make a bit of difference anyhow, because no one thinks in metaphor anymore anyway. It's all dick jokes and social stratification, but the wine keeps flowing and the scornful looks are dimly lost in the mood lighting of the fancy shack where we're waiting on these hogs. Then I'm dreaming of a white Christmas comes on the dining room's ubiquitous radio and I'm running around dreaming of a day when these white people aren't so fucking smug. (laughs) At this point, I almost welcome the apocalypse because it all seems so far gone and appealing to the humanity of the oppressors will never bring about any change, no matter how small. These inclement weather patterns of the heart more tormenting than a nuclear winter wonderland could at this moment of feigned humility. This Bacchus of inhuman trash monsters and climate change deniers was never fun to begin with, and the novelty is worn thinner than my patience for these perfect teeth winos with their Chanel handbags and mousy husbands who won't tip me well anyway. Sometimes I want to tell them off, tell them that they're the reason the polar ice caps are thinning out and the ozone layer has abandoned us humans for our own scrimshaw fate. Then I remember I'm also to blame, but I need to make rent and I need to keep my Buick's belly full so I can get where I need to be to do what needs doing. For this, I'm the same as everyone else. I just like someone to blame so I can feel superior to these mantis people who keep running me ragged for pennies, even if it's only for a moment. At least Troy mostly feels the same, and we can mock these tools behind their backs when they leave and we're cleaning up their mess. It seems like everything is a mess these days, and no one wants to clean it up anymore. No one seems to take pride in a job well done, and I don't know if I can take it anymore. But my blood type is Folgers original, and we can drink as much coffee as we want for free while on the clock, so I guess it's not all that bad. The scarecrow ladies take their handbags and defeated husbands when they leave. The wine glasses they leave behind for us to clean up are drained but they leave rocks glasses full of suicide notes written in Braille and delusional promissory notes written on their receipts. Meanwhile, my phone keeps sending me push notifications from the only ex-girlfriends I genuinely miss telling me what they really think of me, and I come to realize that I have changed for the better in small increments over time, so I know that what they think of me is really none of my business anyway, and we'd all be a lot happier if we didn't concern ourselves with how we're perceived by the people who shouldn't matter. Serving these mammals makes me feel like a wind-up doll, so I twist my man bun tighter and keep cleaning up other people's messes. But really, I'm a sober bumblebee, but I don't serve a queen and I don't have a colony, so I just keep collecting pollen and thin tips to make honey to give away in an attempt at lasting sanity. Wow. (laughs) There's a lot there. There's a lot of uh, anger. And and I think that that it it gets people again thinking about these things they take for granted. You know, I, one of my, one of my pet peeves is that people who work in whatever kind of service are are looked at as like part of the equipment rather than as real people. I remember in my work as a social worker, one of the things 
that I am involved with is helping people after traumatic incidents. And so um, sometimes that's with a business after an armed robbery or something like that. And this particular mm -hmm. case was a business that had a car crashed into the business in literally broke through the exterior wall and they were customers and workers and it was just horrifying tragic thing and nobody nobody was killed it was scary and some people were hurt but you know but still it had a huge impact on the people who worked in that business and we were talking about that and they were trying to figure out you know how do i go back to work how do i deal with people's impatience when honestly i'm totally freaked out to even be in this space and i'm fearful and i'm jumping every time there's a noise and and i said kind of jokingly i suggest that you put a sign on the front counter that says remember we are people not part of the equipment <laughs> you know it's like you know just that just kind of get people thinking about you know everybody that you're that you're encountering as you're doing your errands or whatever they're real people too on the other side of that counter you know when when i was shopping on new year's eve this year buying some groceries and the the i noticed that the cashier was not really looking at people it wasn't really the way that it generally is in this space and and i noticed that she had this big tattoo on her arm um, that was exposed and it was an immemorial um, tattoo and it was i mean it was very obvious i also noticed that she had scars on her arm and that i recognized as scars from cutting and, yeah. and i was aware that she chose to wear a short sleeve shirt and those were both exposed and I wanted to offer, but not um, not be pushy about it, just kind of acknowledge her. And and so I I commented on the tattoo and just asked, you know, if she uh, was interested in telling me anything about it. And it led to the story of her boyfriend who had died um, from alcohol poisoning. And it had happened five years ago on that date on New Year's Eve. And although, as I say this, people may think, what a terrible thing. You made this woman talk about this terrible thing that happened. But the truth was, is that she kind of opened up and unfolded and actually smiled as she was telling me about this. And, and as I acknowledge what a difficult day this must be as that anniversary at yeah. an anniversary at a time that other people are celebrating and doing wild and crazy things, including a lot of alcohol which is what ended up causing her boyfriend's death and and it was it was a gift to both of us you know that she was willing to tell me her story and i could see that she felt relief in acknowledging it you know not that she had to stay there all day you know while she was trying to do her work but she was able to acknowledge and she smiled at me and you know and and i thanked her and and it was just that reminder i'm just sharing that just like your poetry just to re remind us to recognize humanity, to be kind, to assume the best about people, not the worst, you know? Yeah. When somebody's being in a, you know, their their behavior is in a way that you don't like and you don't know them, don't assume they're bad people. Assume there's something going on that you don't know about. So I love the kinds of poems that you have shared, have shared because they really they really fit that for me, that those reminders that we need. And, and as you had said earlier, you know, we, we get a lot of fuel for hatred 
in things that we hear for fear. It starts out probably as fear more than directly hatred. You know, that mm -hmm. this person who's different in this way, you know, you have to be aware of blah, blah, blah. You know? And we probably don't even realize how much we're fed that, but we need to. And we need to remember yeah. that those things are not accurate. So I'm, I'm think, excited about what you're doing, about what you're writing. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, um, I'm glad that uh, I was you know, able to share it with somebody who um, seems to understand or at least, um, you know, have some experience with uh, the sort of um, themes that I've been delving into recently. Yeah. I think that you said something really important with your encounter with that young woman and that um, that little caveat, caveat that you said where it's like, you know, like some people might think that it like make her talk about it on this fifth anniversary of it. I would argue that it is in exploration and um, and revisiting that we get healed. It is those that don't ever talk about, think about, or try to like uh, face their demons uh, that are the ones that are continue to be tormented by them. Yeah. And I say that out of my own experience that it was yeah. through confrontation and uh, eventually now through writing about it. Like that's the panacea for me is to uh -huh. write. Um, I write poems dealing with like these things in my life that aren't pretty that I haven't. Um, and, and that's how I've been healed by it is by, uh, by talking about it, delving into it, opening up the old wounds, cleaning it out and letting it heal. And, uh, uh -huh. and the, her smile, uh, is, I would argue, is a reflection of that healing process for, yeah. uh, of convalescence in, in, in itself, you know? Yeah, I, I so agree. And, and one of the things that I often say in working with people is that, and this is what I truly believe, when we look back at our experiences, it's important to look back with the attitude of no shame and no blame and be able to talk about and write about and, and expose those things because it's what we hide that I think grows in pain and, and limits us mm -hmm. from fully being engaged with people in the world. So, you know, that's having the safety of expression is really huge. And again, I think that's part of what art does for people. You know, people go and they, they see these paintings or they experience this dance or this performance. They hear this poet's words and they relate to things this person has expressed. And they see that this other person who's performing has been able to acknowledge something that maybe I've kept secret. And I see that that wonderful thing that happens in expression. And it gives me the idea that, that maybe I can also do that. And that's a good thing to, to be able to express to somebody what's really going on. So to me, that's part of the power of art. It's really important for building self-empathy as well as empathy with other people. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I think yeah, that yeah. empathy is um is a dying art, and it's uh important that we try to keep that uh, keep it relevant. That like you know, like you said before, that we're not part of the you know the scenery, we're not part of the machinery. You know, the the barista mm -hmm. at the coffee shop uh, yeah. is not just you know he's not a he's not a espresso espresso machine. <laughs> A, a, he or she is a human being with emotions, with with bills yeah. to pay, with concerns, with um, you know, with with malady surrounding them, and trying to make their way through this crazy world. Something yeah. that I've tried to do, um, and adopt is to um, believe and treat everyone around me as if we are all God experiencing itself subjectively. That um, that is, that means that you and I 
of the same, uh, we're made of the same thing and we're like just experiencing this like wonky world subjectively, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if I treat you like you are the God in me and, uh, and hopefully you do the same thing, then we'll all like sort of have this like amiable relationship with each other. And it's helped me to be more, um, uh, to have more empathy for the people around me. And it's helped me to sort of, uh, I guess, um, deal with like the stuff in this world that like some people are really hurt and that's mm-hmm. why they hurt other people. Some people mm-hmm. are really damaged and that's why they go, cause they haven't learned how to heal. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I, you know, just because I have been shown cause I didn't invent any of the stuff that changed my life. I just listened to other people that came before me and, uh, and, and as a result I've healed and, mm-hmm. and, and, and to some extent become more, uh, <sighs> more of a person, I think, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. tough, though. It's a lot. Yeah. A lot of uh, a lot of stuff swimming around in my head right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you mentioned that you your your life journey is not one that is what everybody at thirty five has experienced, including yeah. You, you mentioned living as a squatter in a time when when you were doing things really differently than you are now. So mm-hmm. obviously, there's there've been a lot of different experiences that you've had in your own life and, and making some conscious decisions that get you to a different place now than you were at some other points. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And now you're this like flurry, not necessarily flurry, but a lot of activity that's really engaged with other people. And then it circles back to me that, that you are going to become a teacher to high school students. And, yes. and again, to me, you are the perfect person to be a high school teacher when, when we have high school students who feel so disengaged because they're not respected, they're not valued, they're, they're just kind of pushed through, do this this way, I don't care, just do it and get out of my classroom, you know? Mm-hmm. I think about my own younger son, who's um, since been off to college and graduated. But but he he would say in high school, every day I go is a day I get dumber. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh my god, what a horrible experience. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, I have a lot of um, a lot of opinions on the education system just from my pedagogy um mm-hmm. the classes i've taken that are teaching me how to teach mm-hmm. and uh my placements in schools like i have some pretty uh you know negative uh observations on the system as a whole and i've mm-hmm. had some really amazing place placements with human beings that are the teachers just doing the best they can with the canned lessons they're being given and mm-hmm. uh, and all of this is like I- i'm not qualified to talk about it because i'm not teaching yet i'm still learning to teach and to be critical of something that I don't have any experience with is, um, I guess, openly critical of some, and like, I think is ignorant, you know? And so mm-hmm. I'm, but my observations so far were that the system is flawed and that there's people trying to make it better. And I want to be one of those people trying to make it better. Wonderful, wonderful. And we are winding down in the last couple minutes of the show, which is unbelievable to me. Do you have another poem that you would like to share? Um, I do. Here's another one that's going to be in the um, Fast Food and Super Bowls. This is a poem that was in um, Rusty Truck Zine, I, b- uh, I believe, uh, online. I think they did this one. 
Um, put this one up, publish this one for me. So uh, this is called Gifts Ungiven. When I was 15, Zach De La Roca told me with a whisper, your anger is a gift. I didn't understand what he was giving me. I didn't understand what this meant, but I liked the way it sounded. I still do. His words have stayed with me through the decades. When I was 25, Vic Ruggiero told me, every day the human race is filling me with more disgrace. This I understood. These words have been a mantra as I've trudged in heavy boots through a cringeworthy world. When I was 35, she asked me, why don't you write love poems or poems about nature? Darling, everything I write is a love poem while mother slowly dies. Everything I do is an expression of love. Look around this place, the way we treat one another, the way we value imaginary assets and fiscal idolatry over bodies, over trees is a maddening disgrace that shames us all. The modern day Atlantis is in the Pacific Ocean. It's made of North American rubbish. It's not getting any smaller. Toxic algae blooms choke the coastal beaches. It is said that by 2050, there will be more plastic in the oceans than fish. When the last hummingbird fills the air with its final poetry, will we regret what we've swapped? When the last great whale washes ashore with a belly full of plastic, will it curse us with its final breath? So yeah, this is a love poem, and I am angry, and it is a gift. That's wonderful. Because we do need those reminders to, to value people and to value nature and to recognize the connectedness that we all have, the reality of things like climate change, meaning that this dang diesel Volkswagen that I bought in 2013 needs to be destroyed because it destroys <laughs> the atmosphere because those lion F, <laughs> those lion, Volkswagen people and their emissions, you know, we, we've yeah. got to care. We've got to do things differently. So Nathaniel, thank you so much for your poetry that you've shared, for the work that you're doing to, to bring other people up. The, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're going to be at the Kansas City Poetry Throwdown in April. Listeners, you'll have a chance to, to meet, to hear, to buy poetry from people who are coming in from the Midwest and all across the country. Nathaniel mm -hmm. will be included. It's going to be a great experience. Um, so again, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for this opportunity and, uh, you know, be well. Thank you. And so long to our listeners.